Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. So this is part two of our episode on who has it harder, men or women? And episode one was a really interesting and dynamic conversation. If you missed that, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here is Lloyd on the couch with Matt and Caroline. There was a great conversation with Emil. As we do in the principle of charity, we know that you understand your arguments well. We know that you understand your particular advocacy well. But in the principle of charity, our challenge is to really understand the other and at least start to work that muscle of how we understand the other. So, Matt, I'm going to start with you. We know the government financial pot is finite. How would you articulate the strongest argument for government resources going almost exclusively to women? Historically and ongoing, women and girls have been prejudiced against in a whole range of ways. We've seen three waves of feminism that has resulted in significant progress, and yet there's still a ton of work to do, and Carolyn's touched on the, the, the specific um, examples of that earlier in the conversation. I think if we're going to arrive at genuine equality of the sexes, much more needs to be invested in women and girls in order for us to get there. Okay. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to some of those issues in a moment. Carolyn, let me, let me turn it on its head and let me ask you that question. Again, assuming... The government pot, well, we don't, we know not assuming the government pot is finite. How would you articulate the strongest argument for government resources going almost exclusively not to women but to changing men? It's the men who are perpetrating the behaviors that are leading to such inequity, inequity for women. It is the men who need to reconstruct their engagement with power and privilege. And that's a really hard ask because it's been, you know, within a Judeo-Christian context, 2,000 years, within an Indigenous context in Australia, 60,000 years. That's a lot of generations that have been moving along with the status quo. You've got to put the resources, you've got to change the individual consciousness and you've got to change the big stories. That's a whole of government, whole of community, whole of system transformation and that's going to take a lot of money 
we, we often ask the other person to, to, to rate, rate you on the charity barometer. I'm going to rate both of you very high on the charity barometer, but that, that's part one of charity barometer test. Let's go to part two. I'm, I'm intrigued. Caroline, I'll, I'll start with you this time. What are the three strongest arguments you believe why men have it harder than women today? One, Bell Hooks, who was an African-American feminist who I greatly admire, talks about the fact that men's emotional palate is restricted to one, and that is anger. And when you look at the levels of prison in pop- population, when you look at the levels of male violence against male other men, when you look at the levels of homophobic violence directed at homophobic men, when you look at the levels of transphobic violence uh, directed at trans people, anger and the alienation from emotion is one of the significant drivers of patriarchy and the inequality and violence that is done to both women and men. So that is, I think, one of the key arguments for why this work needs to focus uh, more broadly. And then it goes to the stereotypes that then arise around, you know, Matt's work is around the man box. I would hate to live in uh, this constrained series of stereotypes and expectations that ignores the full potential of of who I could be that would require me to pretend that I don't have innate access to joy that I don't have an innate access to care that condemns me for a man look when a man look is actually the fact that you haven't been in the house all day and seen the detrius of the activities of the day pile up over the pair of shoes. That's not that you've got a man look. It's that you haven't been there to participate in the care because you've been shoved out the door after two weeks of parental parental leave to go and earn the money. So it's, it's that constriction of your fullest expression of who you are as a human. I'm just going to leave it at two. Uh, Caroline, I am feeling... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm feeling, but I definitely know I'm feeling not good. Uh, I, that is a terrible labelling of my emotion. I should be better, but somewhere I'm feeling terribly uncomfortable. Matt, in order to reduce my discomfort, I'm going to change the focus to you after that, after Caroline's comments. What are the three strongest arguments for why women have it harder than men? Yeah, I think first and foremost, Lloyd, the um, the reality that one woman is murdered every week in Australia. Uh, if someone can't be safe in their home, I think is that is the most horrific imposition on that person. And so women's safety, I think, has to be at, at the f- forefront of a conversation about the realities facing women in, and girls in Australia today. Mm-hmm. I think, second, the, the burden that is carried at home with regards to domestic labour. We've seen, you know, I I am about to take uh, six months of parental leave myself. Um, We've seen a, a, I think, a positive shift in the expectations on employers with regards to parental leave. I think we're starting to see some positive shifts as it relates to um, behaviour and yet there's still a lot of work to do. One in 20 dads are taking parental leave in Australia. What we haven't seen a shift on to to a great extent is the 
amount of time women spend in the home on household chores, on caregiving. And so that is an incredible burden just in terms of sheer time. All we've got in many respects is our time. And so I think the, the burden that women carry in the home, that needs a significant amount of attention. Mm-hmm. And I know Carolyn and others uh, have, have contributed significantly to that end. I think third relates to economic security. And there's a range of reasons for that. My um, The other hat I wear beyond um, leading the Men's Project Jesuit Social Services is as an elected councillor in Hobsons Bay. And we know that one of the largest growing cohorts of um, folks who are experiencing homelessness are older women. And that's because systemically they've been underpaid. Um, they oftentimes don't have decent superannuation balances. And the reality is that that's a, that's a challenge we need to address. Women's economic security, in spite of increased labour force participation, continues to be a, a, a massive problem. And so I think that would be the third thing, Lloyd. Thank you. Let, let me shift to the issue of change. Both of you are advocates, you activists in different areas. Let's just remove the idea for the moment, and we know that the biggest changes probably will become through you know, institutions, culture. But let's take a different scenario you have a day with a man who is deeply sexist, has very prejudicial views towards women, follows Andrew Tate, um, but in a fan type of way. You have a day with this man. What are you going to say to this person in a day or over a few hours that you think will help change this person? even if it's a percentage improvement. I mean, my question is, how do you change a sexist man when you have a few hours at an interpersonal level? Um, Leave all the big institutional change out for the moment. I think you have to start with compassion, right? You've really got to ground in compassion, Uh, compassion for the man, compassion for the boy that he was. I also would need to bring compassion for myself, and to know at which point to, to continue in the conversation and which point to walk away. Not to walk away, but to, to be able to say and demonstrate the ways in which his words were harming me, his, his actions were harming me. So bringing compassion as the container. And then I think it's about storytelling and about storytelling to understand the boy that he was and to help him to shine a light on the ways in which society has told him a restrictive story of who he can be and to see what we can do to unpack that story mm. but and to do it in a way that isn't just intellectual but to, mm. to explore in your body, you know, where do these stories reside and how might you be different? But, yeah, to explore the possibilities of a broader existence. Right. Matt, I'm just going to ask you, was, would there be anything that you would add to, to what Caroline has said? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's a corollary of what Caroline's touched on, which is we, we've got to be curious about what people think. If, 
if we sh- shut down the conversation, if we shame people, uh, we're not going to make the necessary progress. Uh, oftentimes, the sexist attitudes you're talking about, Lloyd, and that's a that's a broad umbrella. They're, they're serving some. They're fulfilling some role as it relates to connection and one sense of identity and so um far be it for me to say you could make progress on that in a day but it would be asking uh, a percentage improvement yes that's right it would be asking Mm. questions you know around how is this serving you Mm. Mm. and i think probably something that matt and i would both say is to meet them where they are Mm. And it is that, you know, that incrementalism to meet them where they are and not to put them so far out of their comfort zone in the yeah. curiosity that we bring to, that they then go into flight, um, yeah. but to keep them in curiosity. And, and it's interesting you say that, Caroline, because Emil and I often talk about somebody, I think, you know, whose work has influenced us a lot is Jonathan Haidt. And, and you know, when you were talking about having compassion first, Part of the principle of charity, part of just the science of persuasion is that you can't persuade anyone unless they feel understood. That is the first base. Um, and so, you know, when I was listening to you, I was, it was interesting. That was one of the first things that you said. But let me ask you this question as well. Actually, I'll ask you this, Matt. When should we be more sympathetic to a prejudicial man and when should we be intolerant Mm, tell me a bit more about what you mean by prejudicial word well let's say somebody who believes that women are inferior somebody believes that you know women look to be raped it's their fault they victimized women are less intelligent they're only good for x y and z jobs Uh, you know the, the the whole gamut of patriarchal views at, at what point does my compassion, at what point should my compassion become uh, a view of intolerance? Mm. I think I'll, I'll, I'll start first and foremost by saying we are very interested in addressing behaviour. And so in the context of a one-to-one conversation, which is where this has started, I'll come back because I think there's nuance there. If someone is using verbal, physical violence against um, another person. That is the point where compassion is extinguished um, and accountability becomes the priority. Um, and, and, and so I'll, I'll put that to one side and come back to the context of a one-to-one conversation where folks in that conversation are safe. Mm. And so if someone was expressing those um, those perspectives to me I would start with what makes you say that Mm. I don't think it's helpful to start with you're wrong Um, again in the context of a one-to-one conversation now that's really I won't swear Lloyd but that is really really difficult if you're moving into the realm of oh well she was asking for it and yet if we're not able to hold that balance of accountability with empathy. And you you look at, as an example, at Jesuit Social Services, offer a helpline for people who are concerned they're going to sexually abuse a child. Mm. 
we know that's a significant gap in Australia at the moment and we know there's a 10-year window between thinking about these things and coming to the attention of police. And so it's an example of where in our practice work we're facilitating help-seeking to prevent abuse. Mm. And so we've got to facilitate these conversations because if we squash them, if we push them underground, we see them manifest in all manner of ways, whether online or as I've touched on, the the uh, perpetration of violence. And so we mm. we do have to lean in with curiosity mm. in, in the first instance in that one-to-one context. Mm. Okay. I'm going to change focus now maybe to both of you more individually. And, you know, both of you are at the coalface, you are dealing, you are advocates, you're activists. Uh, you've both spoken about the importance of understanding and being charitable initially. But Caroline, I'll start with you. What triggers you to be less charitable? What triggers you to stop listening? I, I think it echoes what Matt's just said, when I don't feel I'm being listened to, when I feel that I'm being spoken over and disregarded, when I feel that people are bringing a fixed mindset to data and lived experience and being inflexible to respond to a viewpoint that is different than their own. Mm. But won't, won't most, let's in this case, and I'm using that sort of label, most sexist men have a fixed mindset. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you deal with that yourself when you're feeling that trigger it, it's a challenge, I think, for all of us. We feel the trigger when we're feeling opposed or somebody is being what we believe has a fixed mindset, they have a hardline stance. How do you, as an activist, go about everything in my body is telling me and everything in my heart and everything in my mind is telling me I need to nail this person, I need to show how stupid they are. There. How do you go about what's your, what, what is the skill you're using the Caroline Lambert skill for persuasion when you are triggered? To pause in the breath and the body, to recenter in compassion, to recall the purpose of the moment. You know, are we, are we in a parliamentary office trying to push forward a piece of legislation to, to recall that and to see how a new data point, a new curiosity can drive the conversation forward? But there is also just some points where you go, we're not going to come to an accommodation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we are going to agree to disagree. You know, I, I certainly have had experiences of that uh, in, in, in my life. And in that moment looking, I got in a lot of trouble one day. I was at a UN meeting. I was trying to push a women and housing issue into a resolution and I went to talk to the Holy See, the Catholic Church. And my feminist colleagues were outraged. They were like, they are the evil because on the sexual and reproductive health rights and LGBTQI issues, they are the, you know, men in frocks that screw over those issues. But on housing, the Holy See, we were in lockstep. On that social justice anti-poverty piece, we were in lockstep. So where can you find your common ground and mm. and, and focus in on that? Mm. Thank you. Matt, what's the most 
uncharitable thing somebody has said to you that's turned out to be true? I mean, you're dealing with people who are probably incredibly uncharitable at times, no doubt, to you. I mean, you, there are things you say, there are things you do. What are some of those things that may have turned out to be true on reflection? The thing that comes to mind for me, Lloyd, is the idea of self-interest. Mm. Um, we work as on the issues we've, we've talked about today in collective and even just yesterday someone reminded me that you've, you've got to put forward a clear articulation of what's in it for folks and I think that's right, unfortunately. I, I was brought up, Lloyd, by a single working mum, a dad who was great company but was horribly addicted to gambling and it gave me a sense of the world where I was exposed to poverty but I was also exposed to the reality that someone who lives in poverty is not necessarily a, a bad person. And so I bring a view of the world which is, you know, when I'm at my best, holistic and with a genuine interest in others. Mm. And yet I know for a whole range of reasons, and we've touched on some of them, that myself included, we can become insular, we can, we can become nuclear. And so as we communicate on something like gender or family violence, we've got to be talking to people's self-interest, why they should care about it, um, which I think is unfortunate, but it's the, the, the reality of, of the work we do. I want to touch on the the framing that we have of ourselves and whether defining yourself as a victim enables you or hinders you. So, so often we are victims. That is a reality. People are victims. Matt, you've just highlighted, you know, in, in one sense you were a victim of a particular family circumstance, you know, uh, with your your mother having to bring you up and, and uh, a father who was a gambler and all the issues that emerged for you in that environment. And, and Caroline has highlighted many of the, the real issues that women face and are victimised in. But does it help to define ourselves as a victim? So as you say, there is the reality that in some circumstances you are, you know, prima facie a victim. In um, family and domestic violence and sexual assault work, there's a reframe of victim-survivor. And it goes to our conceptualizations of agency and power and the idea of different forms of power, the power over that perpetrated the violence that rendered you a victim. But then the responses that you have to that are to look to your power within and to find your resilience and healing. And you've got to have access to services. So when you underfund those services yeah. because of patriarchy, you're diminishing the ability to be able to heal and recover. The power to your agency to then be able to engage in healing acts. We know, for example, you know, in um, responses to racial injustice, that the power of telling your story through truth and reconciliation commissions is really intrinsic the power with to then find your solidarity and through collective action seek a solution to the, uh, the structures that gave rise to your individual experience that rendered you a victim. And then the really interesting manifestation of power is then that power under 
so that if you are not able to step into power within, power to, and power with, your experience of being a victim then continues to define who and how you are in the world. So that if you do access power at some point, you're scared that somebody will take it away from you. So you express it in the only form that you have had access to in the past, which is power over, and mm, you yourself mm. become an abuser. Mm, mm. Okay. Thank you. Matt, very quickly on that one. Yeah, briefly, Lloyd, I think it depends upon whose terms. I'll talk on behalf of myself. My lived experience is something that gives me tremendous fire to continue when things are hard. And that's something that very rarely would I voice publicly. But there are instances, you know, over my journey where I have been a victim in different ways and I have autonomy over how that is manifested, how that's communicated, how I do my own work on that. I think that there, there, um, this can become problematic where you're imposing people's stories that you may have heard them told you're imposing an identity on them because of what you've heard them communicate Mm, mm, mm. i mean it it does strike me you know in the conversation that we were having earlier about andrew tate when you define yourself as a victim it does energize you uh it it energizes your anger because anger is an energizing emotion i mean it, it seems that Andrew Tate defined men as victims of feminism. They are victims of that. And therefore, you know, he suggests a whole series of self-help mechanisms of finding your power. But, but defining yourself as a victim can help you in the sense of making you angry. The question, of course, at some point, does that anger really damage you? Which, which often it does. I'd like to ask you, just going back you both in organisations, I'm interested not just in the principle of charity at an interpersonal level but at a cultural level. Caroline, starting with you, you know, as a member of YWCA, does the YWCA ever present alternative arguments? Do you ever have alternative views presented that are, that are quite far away from your current views? Okay, so, you know, when I was at the Y um, in a staff role over six years ago, um, I do think that one of the things we tried to do was to recognise what the other viewpoints were going to be Mm. and to be able to understand um, what the positions that we would need to counter uh, were going to be so that we could be more effective advocates. Um, so I think that that's a really critical part of being an effective advocate is to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are opposing your position and generate counter positions so that when you come across them in advocacy or in public debate, you're able to respond to them with mm. a, a, an intellectual muscle memory. So you, you, you've, built, you've built up some bench strength in your argument. Yes. Yeah, you've got your intellectual muscle memory. Matt, how about Jesuit social services? How often in that culture of the Jesuit social services are alternative arguments presented? I think it's a must, Lloyd. We've, we've worked with men and boys for 45 years 
and we oftentimes are working at the crisis end and so supporting uh, men and boys as they leave prison or juvenile justice, um, folks who have suffered severe mental health crises, homelessness, um, in order to make progress on those challenges and deliver work like we do at the Men's Project, which seeks to engage with men and boys before the point of crises, we have to engage with organisations who are working with victim survivors, who are working with a focus on women and girls, because ultimately if if we're not working in partnership with them, and it's not that we have dramatically different views, but we are coming at the work with different areas of focus, we're not going to get very far. It's going to be in contest, in competition. And I think as soon as you've got a situation where, for example, we do a significant amount of work with women's health services, where women's health services are saying, you know, well, why would you work with men and boys? Or or we're saying, well, why would you build another shelter? You're in a race to the bottom. And so I think understanding the perspectives and value of the work that is being done outside your organisation and, as Caroline has touched on, their perspectives, it strengthens our work. And so, yeah, it's a must both for our service delivery and also our advocacy work. Mm. Okay, thank you. Matt, I'm going to ask you this question and it, it relates to the men's movement um, and men's groups. And I'm going to give a very radical critique from Andrea Dworkin, who was a radical feminist uh, in the 1970s and, and 80s, and, and, and she was a radical feminist. And she gave a talk called I Want a 24-Hour Truce, during which there is no rape. 24-hour truce in which there is no rape. And, and it was, in fact, a talk, I think, to the men's movement, which, you know, um, was, was sort of had some strength in the 1970s and, and 80s. And, and I'm just going to read out a few comments, and I'd, I'd love to hear your response. She says, I'm sorry that you feel so bad, so uselessly and stupidly bad, because there is in a way in which this is really is your tragedy. And I don't mean because you can't cry, and I don't mean because there is no real intimacy in your life. And I don't mean because the armor that you have to live with as men is stultifying. And I don't doubt that it is. But I don't mean any of that. What I'm talking about is stopping rape. But when you hear that critique of, I don't really care what's going on in your life, men. Stop moaning. Stop talking about how you're suffering what, what is your response to that when you're dealing with men's groups and the men's movement more broadly? Yeah, my visceral response, it's a helpful contribution. Like, Why? It's a reminder of the reality of women's lives. Like that's the visceral response, Lloyd. I think, I think it is paramount and noting I'm not sure the men's movement is a helpful concept. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, an anti-violence movement involving men is perhaps a better concept or a movement to promote the well-being of men and boys to to the critique you've put, sure. I think the men's movement can move into a sort of men's rights activism pretty quickly in terms of that rhetoric. Um, but my visceral response is good. Remind us of the reality of 
women's lives, a reality that's existed since time began. My head reaction is if we're going to make progress on these issues, we've got to engage with the realities of men and boys' lives. And, and this, was, this was in one sentence. This was captured in the victim survivor's statement on the National Plan to End Violence. Abuse and violence is a problem for victims, but it isn't the victim's problem. And so we've, we've got to engage in questions, and others have put these questions, why is it that men and boys' sense of empowerment, of security, is tied so closely to dominance over others, especially, especially dominance over women? Now, I'm not saying that's the case for, you know, inverted commas, all men, but I would say that that's a question we need to grapple with if we're going to end violence. And the core of this is the impact of patriarchy and stereotypical norms on men's sense of identity. And so, unfortunately, there is a need to engage with the lived reality of men and boys, and that can be really difficult when you've got women being killed, women being raped. It's a pretty bitter pill to swallow to say that we need to take an empathetic approach if we're going to make progress on those issues. It was, <laughs> it wasn't the response I was expecting. Um, I was expecting you to be more defensive, but uh, you really are demonstrating a remarkable sense of charity and openness, both of you. I'm going to end off with a sort of a game, if you don't mind, uh, underrated, overrated. And underrated or overrated, all you have to say is underrated or overrated and maybe just one line on why you think so, and we'll just sort of take turns. And the question is, are these underrated or overrated on its impact on improving gender relations? So I'll start uh, with you, Caroline. Religion, underrated or overrated in improving gender relations? Underrelated. Under, underrated. Why? Very quickly. It's, it's a huge narrative that guides a huge number of people that has been based in patriarchal renderings of institutional faith and if you could harness the stories that are told in religious institutions to promote gender equality, because so many people dwell within those realms, mm-hmm. it would be transformative. Okay. Matt, atheism, underrated or overrated? I know it's unfair bearing in mind the Jesuit social services, but underrated or overrated? Overrated. Overrated. Why? I think that there were a few demographic variables that predicted the likelihood of endorsing the man box attitudes that we explored in our research, and this was research with 1,000 men aged between 18 and 30. Self-identifying as being religious was one of those variables. And so if I had a choice between working with someone who identified as atheist or working with someone who identified as being religious choose to work with someone who is religious. Hmm, interesting. Stay with you, Matt. Jordan Peterson, impact on improving gender relations. Underrated or overrated? Overrated. Similar to what I shared about Andrew Tate, I think he's uh, opportunistic. I think he demands too much uh, attention and it. we're not going to make progress on these issues if we seek to divide. Caroline, cancel culture. Underrated or overrated on its impact on gender relations? Overrated 
because it's in conversation that we come to greater understanding and transformation. Matt, male honour. Underrated. I think channelled in the right ways. The idea of pride, even a rites of passage, not not in the, the, the way that it is oftentimes captured, um, oftentimes by the right, but a rites of passage approach to becoming a man. I think there can be value in that in terms of ritual and the impact that that can have on young men. Right. Last one, Caroline, for you, Jermaine Greer, underrated or overrated? I, I am not going to answer with an underrated or an overrated. Why not? Because in her time, transformative. Right. And now there are so there's a proliferation of new writers. Right. So I can say, you know, in her time, underrated, now overrated, but that's mm. because there's so many new and okay. fantastic thinkers. I think that's a good answer. That's a great it's a, it's a dynamic, underrated, overrated answer <laughs> filled with dynamism. We're going to end off there. I want to thank both of you not only for new insights, but I really, we've had so many guests on the show and Emil, I don't know if you would agree, but both Caroline and Matt have really demonstrated an understanding of the other, whether it's not just on the argument around men and women suffering on resources, but equally just even in these underrated, overrated responses, just a remarkable sense of empathy and understanding. Yeah, and, and I, I, I just, you know, what just shines through is the recognition of a shared fate, you know, and I think that that empathy is not just incredible as a personal character trait, but it's actually strategic as well because, you know, we're, we're united in, in very deep ways, you know, whether it's in the family or the workplace or, or institutions. Thank you so much to both of you. I've learned Thank an you. enormous amount, just an enormous amount, and, and I'm, I feel like I'm a better person for it. Thanks so much for joining Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Caroline. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.